Welcome back to Protect Your Noggin. Friends, we're so glad you're with us as usual. We also like it when you go to our show page, that is protectyournoggin.org, and either send us a message through email or click on the option where you get to share with us a voice memo. And we can either play that on the air or we can just listen to it and respond. We get a lot of opportunities to correspond with people behind the scenes, but it's always nice when you're able to share your question with the broader audience. In this case, our old pal John checked in, and we were so glad he did. He asks an important question, and we're dedicating our show to his question. He mentions abuse in megachurches and other aspects of life within the church world, but most importantly, he asks us a question about what to do when you encounter wolf pups in the church. That is, as this podcast is all about evading or learning how to outfox religious wolves. What do we do when we see religious wolves in the making? What is responsible? What is annoying? How on earth do we try to nip in the bud potential abusive activity without being, you know, outrageously in people's business? Well, that, especially for the seminarian, especially for the person who is seeing people growing up in religious life and wanting to be helpful without being invasive. That's what this show's about. Let's go. All ahead, one-third. All ahead, one-third. Aye, aye. Time by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the crisis text line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Hey, Jeff and Stacy, this is John from Chicago. I just want to start off by saying I really am thankful for what you're doing with this podcast. Uh, I come from a background. I was raised in very conservative Baptist contexts, hyper-conservative Baptist contexts here in Chicago. And then at one point, um, ended up attending a, a well-known seeker-friendly megachurch here in Illinois uh, that has multiple occur or has had multiple occurrences of sexual abuse in the pastoral staff. Um, if if I you know I could mention names and you would immediately know who I'm speaking of. And so I just want to uh, express how how important I think that this issue is. And so I'm thankful for you guys and and what you're doing, even though at times it's certainly very unpopular. The second thing I want to say is that, uh, Jeff, at one point, you and your wife, Stacy, um, took me and a friend out to dinner when you were at a conference in Minnesota. 
And I mentioned the fact that I wanted to be a pastor at some point in the future. And you said to me, uh, and I've heard you say this since, that I need to begin to acknowledge the wrong reasons for which I want to enter into ministry. Right. And so even in that time and since then, I was addressing a lot of these um, shadow self issues that exist, these these sort of sins that have come from harm in the past uh, that have expressed themselves in ways that are, uh, I think, unhealthy and, and could be dangerous if left untouched. And so now that I'm attending a broadly evangelical seminary, I think that the ways in which I've been forced to address that shadow self in myself has opened my eyes to um, ways in which a lot of these dangerous tendencies exist in a lot of my peers. And I want to emphasize the word peers. I don't want to say this as though I'm someone who is free from uh, a desire for control or, or does not have the capacity to abuse, right? I think I ought to be ever vigilant in treating others well and dealing with my own internal uh, traumas and, and uh, character discontinuities. But I guess what I would ask for you is how do you, how do you advise uh, when I see someone who has a quality particular, and I see this particularly in men, cause I think I relate to men. Well, um, I see usually stemming from insecurity, a man who wants to either control or to dominate. And I've seen this multiple times here in seminary and it makes me fearful. And this, um, I've seen this over theological lines amongst complementarians, amongst egalitarians, amongst Calvinists, amongst Armenians, you know, the whole shebang. Um, so I'm just curious what wisdom you have to offer. I know this podcast is about outfoxing religious wolves, but what I would ask for you is how can I uh, uh, catch the religious wolves while they're still pups, if that makes sense? Uh, I'd appreciate any thoughts you have. Thanks. So that's a real important question, and no doubt it's one that we shouldn't gloss over quickly. It's, it's something that's not easy to answer, but important to answer. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Stacey, as you... You know, you first approach this kind of question and the sentiment that we resonate with, this idea that there are these people that make us a little nervous. Right. And we don't know how to intervene. One of the things that kind of comes into mind is when you have sort of these aha moments and you have done some self-exploration, there is a way in which you start to see everything that is wrong in other people mm-hmm. and, in you know, and in, in, in your surroundings. And... My one piece of advice, which I I don't think this is what, you know, I don't think that John is doing this, but I I do want to mention this as a little piece of advice, that there is sort of a a temptation towards (laughs) self-righteousness that we can have where we could just get so frustrated with these people and how come, you know, you could see it so clearly now. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a point at which that because you can see it clearly that it's easy to just judge, start judging other people. And I, I think that, uh, always approaching it with, you know, a, a point of compassion. You've done this work in you. You've, you know, wrestled with it and you've seen it. And now when you see it in other people, I mean, you can, your your heart can go out to them, right? Like there's a, a way in which you can see what's going on here. You see, you know, you, it's 
as plain as day to you, right? But they're still lost in all of that muck. And so with a compassionate heart instead of a judgmental heart is I think the only way we're ever going to make headway in helping them to come along. And I think that I really appreciate how he mentioned that you first had said, and you say this often, but why don't you look at the wrong reasons to be a pastor or, you know, what, um, or <laughs> why don't you search deep in your heart to figure out why you actually do want to be a pastor and then, and just make sure that it's not for any of the wrong reasons. Can you explain a little bit more about that approach? And I, I think it obviously worked on him. And I think this is a really good starting point just to say like what, what, you do when you go through those questions and then that's a a good approach as well when you're able to have a one-on-one conversation with primarily those students who are going into church work Mm -hmm. and it or any kind of work one of the things i like to explore with undergrads is that question of motivation and what is the potential negative personality trait, you know, a personality trait where we're not excited about having it, right? but that it, it, that it is behind what gets us up in the morning and gives us the energy to go do this work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in the case of... So your motivation. Your motivation, but like sometimes they're very hidden, right? That's mm-hmm. why you go back to that concept of Carl Gustav Jung's shadow self. So understanding what it is that is sometimes the most powerful motivator in your life, but something that you hide from or something, something that you hide from yourself, mm-hmm. right? Your conscious mm-hmm. mind. So as an example, professors typically are motivated by a sense of wanting to be respected. Okay. Typically, professors don't want a lot of money. They might want a better lifestyle where they don't want to work nine to five. They want a little bit more independence. But for the most part, a lot of faculty members want respect. And so... We know we're not, they're not doing it for the money, right? No, right. Yeah. <laughs> so money's not the draw. Right. So, so if, you, if you don't call somebody Dr. So-and-so, that can be problematic. Or if you're an administrator, you sometimes will go wrong by thinking that you're just going to incentivize people with you know, standard business-type uh, promotions or, right. or incentives, when in fact, often what people want to be is heard. Mm-hmm. And respected and have that dignity. Well, there is sort of a, a hazing that kind of goes on while you're getting your doctorate, right? And even yeah. at the end in the examinations and things like that. And so there is a sort of if you pass this, you're now into this elite club, if you will, right? It doesn't have to be where they look down on people that don't have PhDs. They just want to be honored for that extra work that they did. They did to kind get of, through it. Yeah, yeah like, a, like a, a Boy Scout who goes on to Eagle Scouts doesn't poo-poo everyone who's not a, right. an Eagle Scout, but they know how much work they did to get to the Eagle, Eagle Scout status, and so the respect that is given to them is, is well-received, usually. And, um, but that's not usually what pastors are after. Okay. I mean, this is similar, but it's a little different. In fact, there's uh, someone that uh, I would consider an enemy, and an enemy, friends, is just someone that you love, but that they wish you harm. And maybe sometimes gives you that negative emotional response when you see them walking down the street. You don't have to have positive feelings towards people. But I remember this, this person was writing about, um, about what makes bad pastors tick, what motivates them. And I realized that in many ways, he probably was drawing from personal experience, which mm. whether he realized it or not, 
I think was insightful, right? So I'm sharing with you wisdom from somebody that I don't necessarily trust, but I trust <laughs> that the negative thing that they see in pastors is possibly spot on, which is glory. Mm. A lot of people that go into church work did not have a lot of, of popularity or, or glory in their normal day-to-day life. Maybe they weren't connecting socially in the public school, but when they came to church, they got praise. Their mom praised them. The pastor praised them. The youth pastor maybe took that person under their wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is true for me. This is true for a lot of friends that I've had over the years that went into becoming directors of Christian education or uh, youth pastors. And that is, there was some way in which they were affirmed mm-hmm. for having something to bring to the table. Well, and Music, some, sometimes too, speaking. those that have set out maybe originally to do something else in college sometimes have transferred over later to go on to seminary. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you, you kind of wonder... If, if there wasn't enough accolades for what they originally had chosen, right, and then found sort of this this instant right. respect and, you know, a, if they a got an MD, position of, of praise or something. Yes, like right. like you said, from their family or other people, you know, you you for those that wear a collar, you know, if, if, if it's not a distressing thing for people, it is a, a definitely like, ooh, I, you know, I'm going to all of a sudden notice this person. Well, you and, get a uniform, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think I exactly understand what you're saying. You maybe got affirmation in your late teens and in college f- for the work that you did with the youth programming and summer camps, mm-hmm. but you realize that there's a dignity or there's a, there's a glory that's bigger than that, mm-hmm. and it's the pastor, with, mm-hmm. you know? So if the goal isn't to share the love and the good news if it's primarily to become somebody important. Right. And you've got the spiritual magic wand. And you're going to get that. noticed at a, at a family, a big family meal and asked to right. say, you know, the put on the spot and get a chance to speak in front of everybody and ask to say grace, right? There's You can go from a nobody to a very important somebody if people buy into the fact that you are the one who it, is dispensing grace or you are the one who is at the officiating weddings or funerals or whatever you're on the spotlight so many in so many big moments in people's lives so i tell students not to get out of their career track or their vocational exploration because of that i think for the most part all of us have some weird hang up some weird emptiness in our lives that we kind of patch up with our chosen vocation Right, mm-hmm. like there's almost always going to be a little bit of a problematic reason we're into what we're into. Maybe you're racing cars because you're a little reckless because it helps you with your despair and depression, and that adrenaline is your drug. Well, yeah, and sometimes, I mean, if that's what you're doing, right, that's the only thing you could think about for the moment. So everything else, else I mean, and you mentioned this sort of the therapeutic part of riding a motorcycle, mm-hmm. that you have to pay attention to every second that you're on that motorcycle of what's going on around you. You can't just let your brain check out into thinking land. You have mm-hmm. to be present. And yeah, I think you find that helpful for when yeah. all this stuff is going on in your I, head, right? I don't have time to dwell on depressing memories when I'm worried about becoming a globule on the freeway. Yeah. So at the same time that I recognize why I'm drawn to motorcycles... I can say, well, riding a motorcycle will be better than, you know, becoming addicted to a harmful, a harmful substance right. to numb that same kind of pain. And I might 
learn to accept that. But I will also learn to not become too reckless on the motorcycle when I'm feeling out of control in my life. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to be circumspect. I need to understand what I'm doing. And the same thing is true for almost like, you know, any profession. But that said, I want to make sure I restate it. Once you identify some of these problems, some of these negative impulses, you, you must learn to channel them and tame them. And sometimes it can be really helpful. I mean, for me, I'm not really, I don't fit exactly into the, the church person world, nor, nor even really the, the professor mold mm. in that I don't need people to call me Dr. Mallinson. I love pouring wisdom into students and having those conversations. Whatever that is, I love that. But even on this show, one of the things I always have to keep in mind is that because of the traumas that I've experienced emotionally through fundamentalist evangelical American Christianity, I often am motivated to do what I do out of frustration and a kind of a sense of vengeance mm. and um, that, or anger. Mm-hmm. I'm angry that I was not treated with the, um, the respect, I think, that comes with talking to young people like they're uh, adults, like with critical thinking minds. I'm angry that I was threatened with you know, a, a, a cricket bat for not obeying this fundamentalist legalistic nonsense. I'm angry that I felt put into a cage by religion instead of liberated by religion. And so I don't stop doing what I do in the classroom or with the podcast, but I do need to pull myself back every once in a while so that I don't just focus only on that negative push to to demolish, Mm -hmm. right? I need to also recognize the value in community and religious practices that might be healing even though there's other aspects right. that that I resented, and, and but at the same time, if I didn't have that, if I didn't have that impulse, I might not be as motivated to get anything done. I wouldn't have as much fun with it. So does that make sense? Right. That's kind of the the process that John's talking about that I that I sometimes share with students. And have fun? How? I just you just mean like enjoying the conversations? That well, part, the the benefit, the other part of it. If you enjoy being affirmed, I think there's a value in doing a great sermon. And feeling like you really pulled something off and patting yourself on the back and feeling good about it. I don't see any problem with that as long as you understand what's going on. Like if you felt like no one affirmed you most of your teen years and now you're preaching your first sermons out of seminary, as long as you don't let it go to your head, I think sometimes you should enjoy the fact that you enjoy it. If you enjoy Mm -hmm. being up there in the pulpit, you just have to not let it uh, get in the way of your primary vocation. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy... I have a personal joy that comes from having a conversation with students who are, who are shackled by, by cruel forms of religion and watching them break free. And I even sometimes get a little bit of a, a smile when the, the monsters that try to pull them back in are evaded. Hmm. Maybe that's not the main thing that should motivate me, but the fact is I enjoy outfoxing the religious wolves. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed getting in a car chase with the Scientologists or whatever, and um, and escaping. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I well, don't want to get myself into that all the time. That's right. the problem. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to like make those things happen. I don't want to create it. But then again, in this life, if that's my vocation, I need to enjoy my vocation. Right. This is a tiny bit of a tangent, but I do think it's important. And you know, you were talking with somebody just the other day, and the person was saying, "Well, you just want me to be happy." And you're like, mm, it's not just that you want to be happy, that I want you to be happy. I want you to, to embrace the parts 
the things that you like, that you're passionate about, that will bring happiness. Right. You could explain that well, a little I, further. I was, but- also, I was also saying to somebody, I'm not asking you to be falsely happy. I'm right. not as- asking you to always be upbeat. Right. I, I want you to confront the things that frustrate you, but I also want you to enjoy your calling. Mm-hmm. Like, just what's wrong with having joy in the thing you're already doing, you right. know? And so if you enjoy being a pastor or if you be, enjoy being a church worker, then you're in the right spot. Right. If you enjoy it. If you enjoy like the, the sinister aspect of using that power for something else. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you, if you feel that the reason you like being a pastor has nothing to do with the message or the discipleship or the shepherding of people towards the kingdom of God, then you should get out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I, I think this is more true of I, uh, people in seminary that I have sometimes seemed to have conversations with or, or overheard their conversations uh, at times. Every once in a while, there's also sort of the the pastor that I'm hearing that their other plans in their life weren't quite working out. Right. And so it, it might seem like it's a little easy to switch over from something more academic, mm-hmm. say in college to do like a pre sem thing or something. Cause I'm just going to move over to the discussion about Jesus. That's so much easier. Mm-hmm. And I think I can, I can pull this one off and have, you know, maybe a guaranteed community and a job mm-hmm. and things like that. And I would, I mean, I would say that is the absolute worst reason because it's obviously not, it's not simple, yeah. it, you know. It's not the easy way out <laughs> at no, all. No, and Stacy, thank you. Right? Yeah. If you got into seminary because you thought it was an easier path than the other paths, and then you start resenting the fact that you're doing more work, say, than than some um, hourly right. therapists, you're, and, you and you're are, doing it at three in the morning. There are so many pastors that you're are making on less call, money. Yeah, on call twenty four seven. Yeah, you know that soon as a one of the parishioners or congregation members needs something, you know, bam, you're there mm-hmm. at the hospital, or you know, or the phone call that you take it, like you mentioned these these ungodly hours, right? I mean, that. I mean, when first of all. There are moments when we've needed that person and it was huge. It was so meaningful to have that in our lives. Mm -hmm. But second of all, just the toll that that can take, not only on the pastor themselves, but their family members, you know, you're in the middle of a celebration and, and, you know, somebody's got to go run off to go, you know, go help somebody, you know, then that, that's really can be disruptive to family life. Right. The family often will have their own issues, but maybe they don't rise to the level of, a crisis yeah. that takes takes the pastor parent away. So I, I think you have to also consider if you do have a spouse, whether the spouse really can handle, you know, you being in this position as well, because I think that it matters, you know, it's going to yeah. impact the family life and, and that's it, an important consideration prior to marrying somebody. Yeah. On um, both sides of that. Yes. And, and so, if you're in it for the wrong reasons in such a way that those wrong reasons make you not enjoy mm-hmm. those things that you're supposed to be doing, if you resent the people in your congregation, if you hate the church secretary, if you hate having to deal with the struggles of the janitor, if you hate people, <laughs> <laughs> right? but you like accolades... Find something else, yeah. you know? And what, what's worse, though, is now we'll shift more directly to this question, because I think I know what this question's really about. And that is, we can see sometimes people 
that have really dangerous personality traits. Not just they're in it for the wrong reasons, but you wouldn't want anybody near these people and they're in your seminary class, Mm -hmm. either as a professor or a peer. What do you do? Now, in the old days, one of the things that happened with seminaries, and and, and it happens in most cases, but it's it's hard to execute, and that is by the time you're done with an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, if you're not suited to the ministry... Are you going to get certified or not? Right. And if you don't, then, especially if you, were being, if you were paying for seminary, now you've got this piece of paper that might be worthless if the church body won't endorse you mm-hmm. because of psychological problems. This is a real struggle because if you took somebody's money, maybe you, the seminary needed it, they let somebody in that they shouldn't have let in, but then at the same time, that's a real, that's a real tricky business to kill somebody's career just because maybe you had a conflict. Maybe they're great and you're terrible. <laughs> like the church body is missing something, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a very tricky business. Um, I want to go to something that I thought was just hilarious and, and poignant and tragic and wonderful all at the same time. Mm-hmm. That intrigued. is, yeah, well, our, our, our old pal, Jordan Cooper. Mm. Now, Jordan Cooper, uh, has, has, to my knowledge, he's never come out and hassled me um, and we don't agree on things, some things. Uh, he's a Lutheran pastor. Um, one of the things I feel really bad about is uh, he had come out to to the Seattle area, and I knew he was a Lutheran, so I figured, you know, a little bit of beer, a little bit of uh, Daniel Tosh comedy hour, and I realized he and his uh, dear wife are, are straight-edge, right? So they're not the drinking and cussing Lutheran types. They are the straight-edge Lutheran types, which, uh, all power to you, my friend, I should have been more hospitable. Sometimes mm-hmm. I need to double check. This happened to me at Oxford also. And I had, a, there were a couple, um, a couple Scandinavian Lutherans that were there just for the semester. And I said, well, since you're one of the only Lutherans I know, let's just do what Lutherans do. Let's go out to the pub and let's, uh, you know, pour some, uh, pour some beers back down our uh, esophagus <laughs> or esophagi. And they had a good time, but then they said, don't tell anybody because we'll get excommunicated. Like, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, different, different church body, different kind of Lutheran. I am so sorry. So I do apologize. <laughs> I do apologize to the Coopers. But um, but my point, though, is that like I feel bad sometimes because he is so, like, he knows his Orthodox Lutheran theology. He, he is somebody, I will say this, he's a public figure, mm-hmm. public Lutheran. And... Um, but he strikes me as somebody that I trust in terms of his integrity. Even if he disagrees with me, I, I, I trust that he speaks what he believes. Mm-hmm. And so I was really delighted when I saw he was doing something that kind of resembled the protect your noggin flow. And he was doing this critical analysis of the, the clergy rosters. Mm-hmm. And what he said was so profound that we gave him the first uh, uh, inaugural... <laughs> The uh, I'm calling it the uh, Orange Helmet Award. Uh, that's that's our little protection noggin kid, you know, on the logo. In other words, here's somebody who really who really got it recently. We got to keep that up, Stacy. We'll put that out <laughs> on our social media. But you know, it, hey, and friends, if you want to nominate somebody for the uh, Orange Helmet Award, somebody who has been perceptive, not just you know angry or outraged by something that happens in the church, but something perceptive, then shoot it our way, and then we'll, we'll broadcast it and amplify that. But what he had said was, was this, and it's, the basic concept is, out of a population of, say, 25 males that are 30, one of them is going to be uh, a sociopath. So 
you go into it. Just by sheer numbers right. like in a room. Right. Anytime you see that. And it probably will be higher for people that go into a profession like being a pastor. So there's a, there's a slightly greater percentage, I think, both intuitively and there's some other reasons to, to look at that. But this is what he's making the case on that might make it more like one in 20. Therefore, if you've got a pastor's meeting of 60, do the math with me, baby. If you've got, let's say, one in, one in 20 mm-hmm. pastors or sociopaths, if you've got 60 people gathered together yeah. at a pastor's conference, you give me the number. Three. You've got three of them. You've got three of them. And they might feed off each other, and they might be vocal, and they might take you out. They might stop you from doing the good work. They might get you fired. They might move you to the provinces instead of into a choice parish or something, depending on your denomination. They might become bishops. They might become district presidents. They might become whatever. So, so and if you and you don't have to limit to it to sociopaths. I mean, there's just what mental yeah. disorders in general, right? And yeah. then the number would probably even go up from there. But uh, but hardcore, problematic, toxic narcissists and so forth. So this doesn't mean that most pastors are problematic. This is kind of the same question that might help us to think through the police force. But if one in twenty police is a narcissist with cruel behaviors and sociopathic behaviors, and they're in a position of leadership, that can change the ethos of a police department mm-hmm. to make it problematic overall. Same thing is true for a denominational body right. or a smaller unit within a denomination. It's very often the case that you'll have slightly more narcissists and sociopaths moving into the clergy rosters, and of those, the nice ones just do their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I'm thinking of a pastor, you know darn well, yeah. that just doesn't even know some of these controversies in his own denomination. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm not going to inform you about it. Just go go Dude, enjoy yeah. your thing, you know? Um, but there's other people that are really in the fray, and they are, they're barking real loud, and they're trouble. What do you do about that? And here's the answer, friend. Do you want to know? And here's the answer, uh, John. I don't think we can get rid of them. I think there's always going to be this challenge of having to play this cat and mouse game with problematic individuals within religious bodies. Mm-hmm. You look at the history of the popes. There's some good ones, and there's some of the most in, insanely bad people in the history of the West. I'm, I'm teaching my medieval history class <laughs> that were popes. Mm-hmm. And this isn't me being anti-Catholic. Uh, Benedict and Francis have both said there aren't just popes that were wrong. There are popes that have been evil. Alexander the Sixth comes to mind, but there are others. There are uh, a whole host of uh, popes that bought their way in and were problematic. And so what happens to the St. Francis of Assisi's? They don't become pope because they weren't in that game in the first place. Right. They were renouncing mm-hmm. all of this power. So who rises to the top? People that naturally typically want the power. Right. So, um, so what, well, that's why yeah. and, and when they say sometimes too often, you know, the best leaders aren't the ones that want to be the leader. They're just right. the ones that, you know, get nominated by the others because people re- recognize that they would make a good leader. Anybody that actually is striving to be the leader, there probably is a, yeah. could be a little bit of that, you know, that ego involved or the, the want for either the respect or glory or some other reason than just the altruism of the position. Yeah. Especially again, 
at the top levels of leadership. Right. Now, sometimes you have a healthy organization that promotes those people. Right. And that happens all the time. But you got to yeah, watch Yeah, I'm out. not trying to yeah. say every single leader is going to be <laughs> no. this bad person. No. I mean, in fact, I hope that you are surrounded by mm-hmm. a lot Wonderful of awesome leaders. Shepherds. Because, and again, it only is, like you said, that one in 20 or so, right? That. But if you have, if you have three great church workers, but they still all have to deal with some tyrant at the top yeah. or in their midst, that's going to be hard on everybody. And right. So anyway, what did, what did you notice as you were listening to this question from John? One of the things that really stood out in my mind is that when we, you know, we, we did the whole series of the protect your noggin with Jesus and we talked about in several different ways, what was the way of Jesus and what did Jesus, you know, how did Jesus teach and you know, what was, what did that look like? Jesus did gather together 12 disciples. He was talking about stuff that was going to transform uh, the way that people were thinking of even, you know, whether you're living in a city, you know, or, or, you're, or you get out of the city. Do you, um, you know, talk about with justice and, and, and pay attention to the injustice and be merciful? And there's so many different things. But he gathered together 12 disciples. He didn't go straight up to the top psycho leaders, right? Mm-hmm. That were, you know, or, or the, or the, the very, um, you know, those damaging people. He, he didn't try to battle with them. Instead, he tried to nurture a group that would help spread the true message. The kingdom. Yeah, right. And so he avoids even telling them about his messianic identity until the very end. Right. He says, hey, demons, keep quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm up to. But he doesn't, directly engage. It's a very interesting strategy. He builds his kingdom first. That's right. a good point. And so... So what's the application for John? So I would say that with that in mind, uh, when you... With that same lens that you could see those that aren't in it for the right reasons, I bet you can also sort of see the ones that are. And I would say build those relationships, uh, affirm those individuals, find a way to maybe put together a support group where a group where you're all sort of on that same page, uh, you know, working together because when you're out there in the, the field, <laughs> uh, you know, if you, when you actually are called as a pastor, these religious wolves will be sometimes coming after you too. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be times when you might need, you know, to retreat for a little while and get, and get sort of this safe haven from one of your fellow pastor friends, you yep. know, and, and they hopefully would maybe have a congregation that could help even maybe put you up if you need to, if you, if you lost your call or something. You know, I think that building that network, this is your opportunity to be in community with people that are going to go out and do the same work. You're all under the same building or, you know, or, t- or learning together. And so it's a great time to sort of build up those networks to help support each other because you guys are going to need to, to to band together to help through the difficult times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't know how much traction our our calls to reevaluate some of the problematic things in in church world um, are getting. Sometimes, like the actual calls, like you know, I can track how many people download something. Sometimes people download things from strange cities, and I say, well, "Where? Why is everybody in that city?" Uh, and I don't know how much traction. Say, you know, our friends like Matthew Stanick and uh, the, the folks at Lutherans for Racial Justice are getting, I wish there was more support amongst 
my co-religionists, but I will say the fact that they exist keeps me from despairing. The fact that they even offer a small little wink of support across the landscape, even people that we barely know, that is how we survive. And and I think we need to do a better job of it. I think you and I, Stacey, we, we are looking for those allies and those friendships, you know, uh, right. like our friend Heather and Dominic and so forth, just people that we, that we can kind of count on to like kind of get feedback from and mutual support mm-hmm. and kind of strategize. How can we prayerfully think about making a difference in the world without causing more heat than light? Right. Those, that's the kingdom of God. That's what the church is. And I would, uh, yeah. and I'd also say that there are often sort of the innocent people that get, you know, they they start to maybe they watch some of the behaviors of some of these other more toxic folks, and they start emulating some of this, on, you know, and not really thinking about the full effect of it. So I think yeah. there are some people that stumble into sometimes these more, uh, you know, toxic teachings or the way of, you know, of going about um, even how you view your own position as a pastor and things. And I think, uh, you know, gathering together and having a group that is modeling, you know, this this gracious uh, gospel community, the kingdom of heaven <laughs> right here, that is far more attractive than the the other shouty person over here that is, you know, in this for the glory and that kind of stuff, right? So you can kind of help... Um, you know, sort of shepherd these these other you know pups away from those wolves, and then provide a, a safe place and a, and a larger community from yeah. which to grow from and explore, and not accidentally get trapped into the same you know the same toxic behaviors or things like that. Our friend Micah says, uh, "Fight evil with poetry." Micah, by the way, this week has out a new book of poetry. Here comes the dreamer. He's got a, a single drop in every few days with Lucy that will blow your mind. If you think, I don't want the hip hop, go check out yes. what Micah Bornet and Lucy, L-U-C-E-E, are doing. Those are some incredible songs, uh, duets that are just fantastic. And he them. also is dropping tracks for his hip hop album that is very hard hit, hard hitting stuff. Um, but in all that, he's what he's trying to say is fight evil with poetry. This doesn't mean just be passive. This is some hard-hitting poetry. The way I would translate this for church workers, pastors, and so forth, instead of using, you know, the combative mode that 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 was kind of the mode of the polemics of the of the Reformation era, woo your enemies. Um, romance them back to goodness, truth, and beauty. Romance them back to the gospel. I think that's the only way we can win. There are some people that are just straight up enemies of the truth. Mm -hmm. We can still pray for them and we can still love them and try to have hope for them. But there are some people that, as you say, are just emulating the people they think are the The models. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this was definitely true in the 90s. There was a lot of theological anger and smugness and and young theologians got the impression that if they were pissed off and they were angry and they were calling out, you know, the heretics or whatever, then they were going to get praised. And then their whole diet became vitriol and fury and uh, just being upset and outraged, right? I mean, we've seen this on the right and the left, but that that's not good for breakfast. You know, you can right. be outraged when you should be outraged, but the idea that... 
you know, the peacemaker, um, the one who is, is, is wooing somebody to a different way of thinking, the kingdom, is the primary vocation for the church worker. That sometimes gets, gets missed. So I think if you approach the situation by, you know, asking questions, uh, you know, sort of maybe make some of those connections for them, right? Through, you know, well, you know, if, if, if you're going down this path, you know, this could be the result or, you know, where they may not fully put it all together themselves. But, but I think if your heart is in the right place and you're just not going to idly stand by while these toxic things are seeping in, you know, through everybody, I think it's important that we do get them to sort of think about it deeper and the implications of some of their actions. There's nothing wrong with challenging toxic behaviors and ideas in a seminary class or in a pastor's gathering, but you do it with trust and love that's already been built up. Mm -hmm. That, that trust being, trust me that I'm not here to just make you look stupid. Right. What we were saying though, is that there are some people who don't care and that's the key. There are some people that you can go to and say, I know you're trying to do the right thing. I know that you're trying to be a champion for truth but the way this comes across is more harmful than helpful. It's more, um, it's more upsetting. It's not the good news, mm-hmm. you know. And now p- people can think about that for two weeks. Normally, people aren't going to respond to criticism like that immediately with any affirmation. But it might sit with them for a little while. When you mentioned Micah's line, fight evil with poetry, and there's so much, there's so much wisdom in that. And I, I thought of, you know, Poetry, poetry is just one form of art, as you mentioned, you know, with verbal, right? With art, right? And and then, as we've been discussing in the Tao Te Ching, the there's a way in which you can even more broadly look at at art. And so, you know, sometimes we think, okay, poetry, music, and you know, painting and, and plays, those are powerful ways that you can, you know, put in, you know, very very good messaging so that you can get people to think about things in a way that they have never been able to see or think about something before or feel right. But you can also do that with whatever your art is and, and what is your art? Your art is what sort of what you, what you build with, you know, in this lifetime. So it's where you put your passion and what comes of it. It's your creative expression. That can, that can look, it's going to look very different for anybody. And we all have the ability through our art, through the thing, through that, even that God-given desire to want to do something, to accomplish something, to build something, there's so much passion and and love that comes through that, that when that is shared with the world, and if it's not about you, because, you know, it mentioned, we mentioned in the Tao Te Ching, the, you know, Lao Tzu says, to not own it, right? So you make your art, but then you don't try to own it. And part of that is sort of, it's not about, you know, getting, you know, again, the, the Jeff Mallinson stamp of you've created, you know, this mm-hmm. or Stacey Mallinson you know, stamp, that it's, it's that you build something and then you allow it to flourish. Right. And then it almost can sort of take it on legs of its own, if you mm-hmm. will, you know, and, and anyway, so I just mentioned that even that, art piece, it doesn't have to just be what we think of sometimes as the arts in let, general. Let me tell you a, a great example of this. They see you're right about it. Um, our, our new friend, Mr. Peng, 
who taught us a lot about mm. beekeeping and this idea, you know, that that the that the honey that's harvested in May last year will be helpful for allergies in that same region May of the next year. It's not just local honey he was talking about, right. but but the idea that we should label our honey and then sell it at that same time each year for people who have severe allergies to the pollens. Right. And if done correctly, like our son, by the way. it almost makes all of the allergies go away entirely is what he was saying, because you're it's for that specific area, for that specific time, where we often go wrong is, again, either, you know, using the, the fall honey in the mm. springtime or from a different local honey area that you're... Those, or or those purified honey there. that loses the Yes, compounds. all of the benefits that are actually helpful. But what was he doing? This guy has his own businesses. He's, he doesn't need to be a... Beekeeping's a bee. what he does yeah. for fun. It's his art. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't need to have Mr. Peng's honey factory. Right. What he wants to do is he had his son there with him and he, he helps talk to our students about beekeeping and he was sharing all this wealth of information with us because he wanted his art to keep flowering and as you say, it, it takes on a life or takes on legs of you know, yeah. its own, right? So it's, it's going to keep running mm-hmm. even after he's gone as long as he builds his 12 disciples of honey makers, right. <laughs> you know, beekeepers, you know? Right. And I, I just, I have to say, if you didn't think that beekeeping was cool or something you wanted to do, and you met him, he would woo you to the concept, right? <laughs> At least it's fun to listen to him, if, yeah. and you'd want to kind of check it out, even yeah. if that wasn't what you decided to do with your life. His love for it, though, mm-hmm. his love for it's it infectious. is infectious. And so this is why, friends, they will know we are Christians by our love. So... You need to find those allies, or as I've said in a poem, you need to go find the order of the great Pyrenees. Who are the moral and theological and spiritual heroes, John, that you trust? You shouldn't be surprised if two and 50 is, that'd be one in 25, is the number of people that you should trust, Mm -hmm. that you really can count on. There's going to be a lot of people that are just kind of floating through, and then there's going to be some bad guys. And so along the way, you need to figure out who those allies are because you need to support each other in the ways that you can. You need to oppose the bad guys. You need to train the congregation members. This is what we're doing in the discernment skills to avoid being overpowered by these these mind tricks that the bad guys will play. So, so again, you can try to do something about it. If you're in a position of leadership, strengthen the protocols that get rid of people with personality disorders. We don't have to kick them to the curb, but we don't have to necessarily let them be senior pastors. Right. And certainly, you know, don't wait till they've graduated seminary to basically say it's impossible for you to get a position. I mean, I think if there's something that you're worried about where they are sexually abu- abusive, if they are um, bullies, if they are white nationalists, you might want to take this to the the people in your church body and say I highly recommend that you look into this further because there are some problematic signs. Now, that's a that's a move that you don't want to take lightly, but the alternative is where we see ourselves too often in American Christianity Everybody says, oh, yeah, we knew that guy was creepy. Well, then why didn't anybody do anything about it? This isn't about them. It's not about you. It's about the kids. It's about the people that are vulnerable within a congregation that if they're put, 
you know, if somebody is put in front of them with the endorsement of a church body and they are dangerous, right. that makes them quadruply dangerous. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned about sort of the creepiness. Well, we knew that person there, there's, you know, there's sometimes where certain actions have definitely occurred. And there are other times when it's just, this person might be capable of those actions. And so there's a very fine mm-hmm. line there because you don't want to necessarily ruin somebody mm-hmm. over a suspicion that you might have. Right. right. But if you do know that they have crossed over and for sure in a, in a real way of some kind that is um, alarming, it's, it's one of those things where I think we don't, necessarily sometimes take enough that when you're going to be like a lawyer or a a, you know a therapist of some kind if you're going to be i would hope a president of the united states um a pastor there's certain there are certain positions where there's a certain level of trust that needs to happen and once that trust becomes broken you're you're you can't effectively lead the way that you know, you need to, to go further. And it doesn't mean that there isn't any sort of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that you can't work anywhere. It's just in a particular position that requires that unbroken trust. You kind of, I think at that point, that person has lost the right to continue in that, on that same level. A lawyer would get disbarred if they, you know, divulge information they shouldn't you know, about their client. So we need to make sure that we have a higher standard for some of these positions because they do need that trust. There are some positions where, you know, we do need people that are above reproach. Right. So there's that idea of who we hire, who we trust, but there's this other aspect that I think you can't ignore. And it's, it's, it's along these same lines, but it has to do with, it could be your own self or somebody close to you. Somebody who does a certain kind of thing isn't damned for all eternity, but they have shown a certain aspect of their psychology that might be permanent with them, Mm -hmm. right? So if you torture a bunny rabbit, you can be restored and you can be forgiven, but you also might be dangerous because the same kind of brain, for whatever reason that it got broken in this way, that is broken in that way, is not going to be the kind of brain that I want running my Sunday school classes. Right. Just ever. You, you just can't do it. And so if you have somebody in seminary who, let's say, commits sexual assault, that's, that's game over. It has to be game over. If nobody else knows it and you know it, you're not trying to ruin somebody's career. You're trying to save the, the, the people in the church's that would be exposed to this person. Right. You just, you have no choice. And, and, and this goes back to something in the great um, tradition of the classical Greek philosophers. And it's a myth, but I think it has something true to it. Werewolves. Werewolves, they believe, emerge when people eat flesh of other people. So it's cannibalism. So if you are starving and you, and you kill somebody and eat them, then they had this myth that you would turn into a werewolf because mm. you would develop a taste for human flesh. Now, I don't think that actually happens, <laughs> but the metaphor is is apt. And it does happen with animals, right? When we were 
camping out in the uh, the various places we were camping, if there was a bear that got too close to people, if they tasted people, even sometimes if they just ate a, a cadaver, mm-hmm. if somebody froze to death in the forest and then the bear got a taste for human flesh, they became dangerous. You mm-hmm. couldn't have them around. The same thing with mountain lions, that sort of thing. So, so the idea is the person who becomes a werewolf is a person who like the, like the bear or the mountain lion tasted human flesh. I, I often illustrate this in my classes when I'm talking about ancient Greek thought with reference to Fidel Castro. Mm. And, you know, our friend Marcos Ruiz kind of turned us on to this when we were talking with him earlier on a different episode about how it was that this so-called man of the people could become such a terror. And Marcos's idea, I think, was a pretty good one that, that he early on started to experience the intoxicating power of being a, quote, man of the people. This person could be a champion for the people and, and democracy and all of a sudden get drunk on all this power and become corrupted by all this power and then just love death because of the, because of the power trip it gives. At first, you might just be executing people that are direct threats, you know, to your regime. Maybe they had a, an attempt on your life, mm-hmm. you know. I guess that's reasonably the way you go about it. If you're a head of state, you don't want people thinking they can, you know, commit assassination attempts. But then you start executing your political enemies and people who have the wrong thoughts and so forth. And you just enjoy it. You know, you enjoy that power. And so you go from Batista, who's a, not a good man in Cuba to a much worse guy, Fidel Castro. Now it's even worse because it's in the name of the people. Whereas Batista was kind of more like a, you know, he's obviously a little corrupt there. But but it's sometimes when people are when people are really excited or really enthusiastic about an ideology that they become most problematic because they think, well, I'm gonna do things that are cruel, but I'm gonna do them in the name of something holy, and therefore I can get away with murder. And this idea that control and domination is partly what religious leaders can tap into in addition to political leaders is something that we see on the chessboard. You see Kings and Queens and you see the little horsey. That's the knight, but you also see the, the dude with a mitre. That's the Bishop. When churchmen historically have gotten a taste of political power, they become uh, feverish with wanting more of it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's all of us, right? That's the ring that, that um, that Frodo tried to give to Gandalf, and Gandalf said, "Don't give me this." Right, you know? right. He realized it would be ruined for him. But that said, there is one thing I don't want to let go of with respect to those wolf pups in seminary that you see. If they have not crossed a line where they have demonstrated a severe lack of judgment, where they have c- committed a, a a sexual offense that is a, a deal breaker, right. where they 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 maybe have a a gambling addiction and they embezzled or something. There are certain things you'd say, these are red flags that that Mm -hmm. actually disqualify. Um, There is a sense, though, in life that that Christian hope isn't about hope, as I think we've said on the show recently, it's not about hope in the abstract. It's not about hope in structures of society that can fail us, and not even really hope in, in the sense that we are, that we're gullible, or naive. Hope is that we have this belief that the power of 
the good news, the power of unconditional love, the power of grace can be so powerful in a person's life that if you use it on somebody, if you turn that weapon of love on somebody, Mm -hmm. it can move mountains. What we mean by Christian hope is we don't give up hope that even our enemies could be saved and come out of darkness and into the light. So this has worked. We cannot tell all the stories, but there have been times in our lives where we thought mm-hmm. our world was just going to be ruined by some, some person who's hell-bent on our destruction. And we turn to them in love, and we, and we do everything we can to say, I'm not going to be baited into, into fisticuffs here. I'm going to embrace you in love, and I want the best for you. It's, it's in a few cases, miraculously turned things around in a, in a moment when I thought there was nothing left. And I, and I would also suggest that if you have seen somebody that seems to have truly transformed and has embraced repentance, you know, you mm. mentioned sort of the, all of a sudden they can kind of see it in the, in the new light that they are the old ways no longer um, interest them whatsoever, that they now have a new understanding and a new way of seeing, then I think it's important to embrace those people and to allow them to, you know, perhaps, you know, become one of your band of brothers if you think you can trust them. Right. You know, you might not make the embezzler the, the treasurer (laughs) again, but you, you really not just, you don't just pay lip service to forgiveness. You say, how can we plug you in, in a way that's healthy for the sheep and that, you know, is good for you. For instance, if you are listening to this podcast and you yourself have acted like a religious wolf, I'm not so sure that you wouldn't be very helpful in kind of doing seminars. I mean, one way to kind of rethink what your career is, is go and do talks with other pastors about where it went wrong mm-hmm. and how they can avoid those bad forms of thinking that Pitfalls. led to that. Yeah, because like the, the application here with the religious wolf is, you know, one of the things that happens is people who did not feel popular in school, maybe the ladies didn't like them. Now they're kind of rock stars in an evangelical world. I mean, it, it's, it's not a, a, a big mystery who John's talking about when you're talking about a mega church in the Chicago area. But you don't normally think about that specific church as a place like, you know, complete hustlers. It's not, it's not one of these televangelists that's just directly and cynically exchanging money for fake miracles. Mm-hmm. Even these bougie suburban megachurches that are comfy seating and, and lattes, they don't seem to be that big of a threat, and they're not. But anytime you get something that big, you do need to watch out mm. that people who might have, have been missing something in their heart affirmation could have that affirmation in sexual in sexual activity become intoxicating and they didn't grow up like learning what to do with those feelings maybe when they're in their adolescence now they're senior pastors or whatever this is in no way to blame the victims it's to say that any misguided attention from somebody that that a pastor is attracted to, they can get that taste like the werewolf of, of that affection and then become addicted to that and make that become what they fixate on. And that's where we get these problems that are just so rampant. It's over and over and over again. We're seeing these stories pop up in churches of all varieties uh, around the country. 
Right. So if I was to sort of kind of sum up quickly sort of what we've been discussing today, I would say when you start to notice some of these things, just watch out once again, your own motivation and make sure that it's not coming across as judgmental or self-righteous because that's not going to help anybody. I would also mention that, you know, having the approach of asking the questions just like, you know, Jeff was able to do for you, John. And when it comes from a, a true spirit of, of love and wanting to help a person, you can get them to think and start to process. Uh, and and also just that also goes for being able to ask those, you know, similar questions that might make them think if they, you know, do say something in a, in a classroom setting or in a smaller group or whatever that might, you know, be spreading, you know, bad things to the bad ideas to the others in the group that you can also, you know, again, ask those questions and have people think deeper. And then probably last and most importantly, I would definitely say that by nurturing a group of people, the people that are a part of, you know, your, your tribe, but gathering those that are like-minded, knowing that, that you can all support and lift each other up wherever you are in life uh, those people are important. Community is important. I think we're all, you know, realizing uh, the, you know, the uh, how lonely it can be when you don't have a community of folks that you can rely on, that you can nurture one another, um, and and live out that that kingdom, you know, with one another. I think that when you have that, that that's how you can get through the darkest of times, the hardest and most difficult things that you come up against. And and we need those networks to keep being able to do the great work that we're doing. And so I hope, friends, that if you are able to, that you can find those people in your life, the people that will show you unconditional love. It doesn't mean that they're going to not disagree with you or not rebuke you. If or be perfect hit, at it. Sometimes be perfect, they're angry. Yeah. You know, but, but just the, that, that group that... That's the default. That, yeah, that will love you unconditionally, that you can have grace for one another, mercy for one another, look out to help, you know, maybe stop each other from falling into pitfalls when, you know, if you honestly can speak to somebody and say, hey, I'm a little concerned here. That's what we need. We need people that are going to come alongside us. And so I hope you all can find that wherever you are, pastor or no pastor, just in your life in general. Just remember that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the body of Christ. You are the presence of the kingdom, and this kingdom will have no end. Peace upon peace, friends. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much. Hey there, friends. 
In our travels across the U.S., we have found a website that we absolutely love. It's called Harvest Hosts. Could you imagine camping overnight in a vineyard, distillery, brewery, or a golf course all to yourself? We've been doing it, and it is absolutely magical. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link where you can sign up and get 15% discount on the annual fee. We think it'll put a smile on your face, and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or camper with a toilet and cooking facilities, and you can stay all around the country for free. We hope you dig it as much as we do. Check it out. 